0: You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Last Sunday, we began a new series here at Whitefields. Uh, It's called The Pursuit of Happiness. And in this series, we are studying through Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's a letter which was written by Paul in the midst of very dark and difficult circumstances, but yet in spite of that, it bursts forth with joy and hope. And so in this study of this book, what we're discovering is the keys to find the happiness we desire and the joy that we were made for. So if you'd please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are glorious. You are worthy of our praise. And Lord, we seek to honor you now. As we've sung to you, as we've sung these songs as prayers from our heart to you, now we we turn our attention to your word, and we ask that you'd speak to us through it. We pray that this would be a continuation of our worship of you as we sit and listen to what your word has to say, and as we consider it, as we delve into it, what does this mean for us today? And we ask that you would give us ears to hear these things that you spoke so long ago, but which are so incredibly relevant to today and where we're at. So give us ears to hear, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Several years ago, there was a trend. Maybe some of you remember it. Uh, There were these t-shirts, right? And these t-shirts would say things like, baseball is life, or football is life, or basketball is life, and the rest is just details. Anybody remember those shirts? Now, if you were a baseball enthusiast or some other kind of sports enthusiast, and you really loved that sport, but basketball, football, whatever, you could express it by wearing one of these shirts so you could declare to your, the world your feelings about this sport, whatever it may be. And these shirts became so popular that what happened is everybody wanted to jump on that bandwagon. And so some people, they, uh, they started, okay, well, we need more because, you know, I, uh, I have this hobby or I have that hobby. They wanted something outside of those two or three sports that were listed there. So they started expanding into more of these shirts, and then it became a little bit ridiculous. You know, some of them were okay. Like, for a while, it was like, okay, golf is life. Okay, you know, that's fine. Soccer is life. But then they just got a little bit carried away, didn't they? Like, fishing is life. I saw one that said, base jumping is life. Like, what kind of niche group of people is that who wears that t-shirt, right? A poker is life. right? Like quilting is life. And then it just got really ridiculous. I saw a bumper sticker that said pizza is life. And my personal favorite, bacon is life. I, I actually might get one of those. But it does bring up a very important question, doesn't it? And the question is this. How do you define your life? Let me ask you again. How do you define your life? What is the thing that you are living for? What is the thing which you would say, this is to me my entire life? What is it that gives you Purpose and direction, the most important thing to you that no matter what else happens to you, this thing, having this thing, gives meaning to your life. The title of today's message is Redefining Life and Death. So, the book of Philippians is a letter which Paul wrote from jail. Paul was arrested about three years prior to this, prior to the writing of this letter. He was arrested in Jerusalem because of his Christian faith. And now, He's currently in jail in Rome, and he's in chains, literally in chains. He is literally chained 24 hours a day to a member of the Praetorian Guard. Praetorian Guard, by the way, they were kind of a special regiment of Roman soldiers whose job it was to watch over uh, Caesar and, you know, Caesar's area there. They're kind of like what we would call in our day the Secret Service. If you've seen the, m- the movie Gladiator, they talk about the Praetorian Guard, you know. Um, So the Praetorian Guard, Paul is chained to a member of of the Praetorian Guard, and every six hours, so four times a day, they're they're changing out the soldier who is chained to him. Somebody's always on Apostle Paul duty. And this means that for two years that he's in jail, that's how long this period's going to be, Paul couldn't go to the bathroom in privacy. Paul couldn't sleep in privacy. He couldn't have a private conversation. And previously, he had been a missionary. He had been a pastor. That was his life. But now he can't do those things anymore, and it would seem that everything which had given Paul's life meaning and purpose had now been taken away from him at this point. And it's at times like that, when things are taken away from you, that mean a lot to you, it's times like that that you really begin to ask yourself, what is my life all about in the end? What am I living for? What defines my life? Is it your career? Does your career define your life? Is it your friends or your hobbies? Is it your family or your children? What is it in your life that defines your life? Now, what if all of those things were taken away from you? Then what would your life be? What's so incredible about the Apostle Paul is that he had a definition of life which enabled him to have joy even when seemingly everything in his life had been taken away from him. Yet he had this one thing that enabled him to have joy. What was the source of his joy and how can we have it too? That's what we want to know. So here's what we're going to look at this, in this section. Three points that I want to bring out from this text. Number one is the power of changing your mind. The second is there are two sides to every chain. And thirdly, engaging in the right conflict. So the power of changing your mind, there are two sides to every chain, and engaging in the right conflict. Let's begin by talking about the power of changing your mind. Here in chapter 1, I'm going to read a couple verses, and then we'll we'll get through all of them eventually. But here's where we start. Verse uh, 12, Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And Down in verse 18, he says, I will rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ this will turn out for my deliverance. And then he says in verse 21, "For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain." How was Paul able to have joy even in the midst of these harsh circumstances and these difficult conditions? How can you and I have a joy that is bigger than our present circumstances that whatever that might be that we face? Here's one of the most important factors that we learned from Paul the Apostle. Paul's joy was based in what he knew. And he acted upon what he knew rather than how he felt. He acted on what he knew rather than how he felt. That's one of the key messages of this book. How you think affects how you feel. And your actions shape your attitudes. Fifteen times in this letter, Paul talks about thinking. Ten times, he talks about remembering what you know. So he says, I will rejoice. That's an action. He's not saying, I feel happy. He's not saying, I feel like rejoicing. I might rejoice if things get better, but no, I will rejoice because I know that certain things are true. Now, have you ever been bummed out, right, having a bad day, and someone comes up to you and says, hey, cheer up. That, that solves the problem, doesn't it? And then you say, oh, well, well, now that you say that, Well, problem solved, you know? No, of course not, right? Somebody could tell you, hey, cheer up. Oh, okay, that fixes everything. Like I can just switch it on and off, right? No, because you can't just change how you feel like flipping a switch. And sometimes we have feelings, don't we, which we know are not good. We know that they're wrong, but yet that's how we feel. And sometimes we even say that out loud. We say, I know I shouldn't feel this way, but I do. And I, I don't know what to do about it because I know that I shouldn't feel this way, but it's just the way I feel. See, the thing is, many times we can't choose how we feel, but you know what you can choose is how you think. You might put it this way. You can't change your heart, but you can change your mind, and if you change your mind, God will change your heart. See, if you choose to change the way that you think about something or someone, then the way that you feel about that thing or that person will change as well. Think about this. Joy, happiness, and contentment. These are the things which everyone desires. We All of us, you and me, we desire these things too. Every person is looking for these things. Consistently in studies of people from every economic level, uh, when they ask people how much they would need in order to be happy, in order to be content, you know what the answer people always give is, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. If I had just a little bit more, then I would be happy, then I would be content. But yet, here we see the Apostle Paul, and he's lost everything. But yet in this letter, he talks about how full of joy he is. And at the end of the letter, he's going to say, I am completely content. Now, how is that possible that he's not like the rest of everybody else who's saying, if I just had a little bit more, then I would be happy, then I would be content. How is this possible? Here's how. It's because of what he knows to be true. What he knows to be true. And what is that? What is that that he knows? First of all, he knows that he is loved by God. He knows that although he has sinned and fallen short in so many areas, he has been forgiven, he has been redeemed, he has been justified through Jesus Christ because of what Jesus did for him. And because of that, he has a glorious future to look forward to. And there are other things that he knows, things that we're going to talk about actually in our next point. He knows that there are two sides to every chain. He knows that nothing can get to him without going through God. He knows that God is the only one who can turn worthless things into pure gold and he knows what his ultimate destiny is. He knows that when his short time on earth is over, he knows what awaits him is life, true life, where things are the way they're meant to be. It will be a never-ending story in which each chapter is better than the one which came before and these truths have redefined life and death for Paul. Life has taken on a new meaning because of the gospel. If you ask most people, what is the meaning of life? They won't actually be able to give you a really good answer. They'll give you, you know, predictable answers. If you ask most people what is the meaning of life, here's what they'll say: the meaning of life is, uh, you know, to be happy. I don't actually think that's a bad answer. That's a decent answer. Here's the problem, though: what if the things that make you happy, what if the things that make me happy, cause another person to be unhappy? Let me give you some examples. I I have uh, known people and. Counsel people over the years. Uh, people I've seen people leave their spouse, leave their kids, and the reason, the logic they gave is, I'm not happy in this situation, so I'm going to leave and pursue happiness for myself. Well, and if life is short and being happy really is the meaning of life, well, then that makes sense, doesn't it? Because I mean, if life is short, then why would you want to spend life in an unhappy situation? If the meaning of life is your pursuit of happiness, well, then by all means, that makes sense. But the problem is this, what if your pursuit of happiness causes another person to be profoundly unhappy? I mean, I could spend all of my time and all of my money doing things that make me happy, but then what about all the people who depend on me, my family members, for example, who depend on me for what they need and what makes them happy? So if I make myself happy, inevitably other people become unhappy as a result. And so some people would say, well then, the meaning of life can't just be to make yourself happy. The meaning of life must be to make the world a better place. The meaning of life must be to improve things on earth for future generations to come. Okay, but here's the thing. If you look at where we're at today as a society, as a people... There have been so many great advancements in technology, there have been so many great steps forward in society, and these things are very good, but we still ask ourselves the question, we've got all these advancements, but are we actually happier? Are we actually better off? Are we more content? Are we more fulfilled than the generations who came before us? And the answer is no. No, we're not necessarily happier or more content or more fulfilled. In fact, statistics would show just the opposite. I read an article this week in which the writer was saying this. She's saying, there are all these reports out there now saying that people in our day and age experience higher rates of anxiety and depression and other mental health issues than any other generation that has ever lived before us. And so this is what she was saying the statistics say, and this writer was saying, well, that's just simply not true, and here was her grand conclusion, which I thought was very kind of ironic, right? Here's the grand conclusion. Other generations were just as depressed and anxious as we are. Oh, really? So, so in other words, all this progress that we've been sweating over and striving for and working for, and we've considered this to be the meaning of life for so many generations, and this is where it's gotten us, at best we are no better off when it comes to depression and anxiety on average people are not happier and more content than generations prior to ours and that's the best case scenario do you see that like that's the optimistic view is oh yeah we're all depressed and so was everybody else and at worst we're actually more depressed and anxious than any other generation that's come before so technology is great and societal improvements are great but they haven't made us necessarily more happy or more content because the the thing is that none of those things actually address the fundamental issue, the real problem that's at the root of the human condition. And that is that we are fundamentally broken. We are not who we were made to be. We're fallen. And that's why it is only through the gospel— Of Jesus Christ that we can obtain that deep happiness and that profound joy which we long for because only the gospel deals with the fundamental issue of our brokenness only the gospel gives us a way to be healed and restored because Jesus took our curse he bore the burden of our sin he was broken so that through him that which is broken in us could be healed and so for Paul because he's come to understand the gospel life has taken on a new meaning No longer is life, no longer is the meaning of life seeking after his own personal fulfillment and happiness. Nor is it merely uh, to make the world a better place. No, because of the gospel, because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did on the cross, Paul is able to say, for me to live is Christ. As long as I live... I'm going to live for him. I'm going to live to know him and I'm going to live to make him known to other people in the world. He is my life. He gives direction and purpose to my life and I will follow him. When you embrace the gospel, not only does it redefine life, but it also redefines death. You see, it gives a new meaning to death. Whereas before, death was considered a loss. The the death was considered inevitable and ultimate defeat. The gospel redefines death. Because of Jesus, if you embrace the gospel, death is no longer lost. Death can actually be gain. You see, here's the thing. Even if people could be made happier through technological advancements or improving society, even if you could fulfill all of your goals in life and attain great success, here's the thing. It it wouldn't change the fact that one day you're going to die. One day you're going to die, and then the next generation after you, whether they have a good life or not, they're going to die too, and so will the next generation after them. And so the best that progress in society and advancement in technology can ever give people is a better Band-Aid. A better Band-Aid, but it can't heal the wound. You see, the best that those things can do is ease the pain, but they can't stop the bleeding. They can't heal the disease, only the gospel can do that. Only the gospel can heal that wound. Only the gospel is able to cure that disease. And so the gospel not only redefines life, gives new purpose and meaning to life, but the gospel also redefines death. God sent Jesus into the world to die on our behalf so that through his death we might have life. So that through him death has been declawed. It's been defanged. It's, it's been tamed. It, it's fangs have been removed, its teeth have been broken, it can no longer poison us because Jesus took all the poison. Through Jesus, that which was formerly lost has now become gain. See, this is what Paul knows. He knows the gospel. He knows the depths of his own shortcomings, and he knows the height and the breadth of God's love for him, which is so much greater than his sin. He knows the other things which we're going to talk about in our next point regarding God's loving providence, overruling all of the things that happen in his life. This is what he knows. And during those times when darkness begins to creep into his heart, he reminds himself of what he knows. These truths that change his thinking. You see, you can't change your heart, but you can change your mind. And if you change your mind, God will change your heart. You you can't change, you can't choose how you feel, but you can choose how you think. And if you will change your mind, if you will change the way that you think, then your heart will change as, as well, and your feelings will follow. You know, one of the most interesting phrases there in verse 18, Paul says, I will rejoice. He's talking about an action. He's not talking about a feeling. He's talking about what he will do. You know, you have a lot more control over your actions than you do over your feelings. But here's the deal. Actions affect attitudes. And what that means is that if you act in accordance with what you believe, what you know, what you are convinced is true, even if you don't particularly feel like it in the moment, your actions will affect your attitude. If you act in a way that is loving towards a person you don't particularly like, over time, those feelings, your feelings towards that person will change. Why? Because actions shape attitudes. If you will choose to rejoice in what you know, then those actions will affect your attitude. So that's the power of changing your mind. We see that here with the Apostle Paul. This brings us to our second important thing that we see in this section, and and that's this. There are two sides to every chain. There are two sides to every chain. Please read with me uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's saying this, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that in spite of these bad circumstances, God has been using this in incredibly good ways. He said, I want you to know that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Here's one of the things which Paul knew which helped him not to lose heart in spite of his circumstances. He knew that nothing can get to you without going through him, meaning through Jesus. Nothing can get to you, if you are in him, nothing can get to you without going through Jesus. You know, that's the reason why Paul, throughout everything he's been through, he he doesn't become bitter. He's able to look at all these things that have happened to him and he doesn't grow bitter no matter what happens. Snake bites, shipwrecks, being lied about, None of this stuff makes him bitter. Why? Because he knew nothing can get to me without going through him. So I'm not going to be bitter about my circumstances because Jesus has approved them, and he loves me. To be a Christian, the Bible would say, is, is, it's positionally that you are in Christ. In Christ. That's your position as a Christian. It says in the Bible that your life is hidden in Christ. It's kind of like if you would put on like one of those big mascot costumes, right? Like zip that thing up. Whenever anybody looks at you, they don't see you. You're hidden inside that costume. You're zipped up in it. All they can see is what's on the outside. And the idea is that when God looks at you, if you are in Christ, he sees Jesus. He doesn't see your faults. He sees Jesus in his perfection, in his righteousness, in his holiness. And here's the thing though. If you are in Christ, then nothing can get to you without going through him. If Satan wants to attack you, he's got to file paperwork. He's got to put in a work order that's going to be on God's desk. God's got to sign off on that thing before anything can happen to you. Nothing can get to you without going through him. And do you know why that should comfort you? Do you know why that comforted the Apostle Paul? Because Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, than that they would give their life for their friends. And then he said, you are my friend. And then he gave his life for us, right? And in Romans chapter 5, Paul says this, God shows his love for us. He proves his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Here's the proof that God loves you. He laid down his life for you. He gave, the Father gave his only son for you. If that doesn't prove to you, if that doesn't convince you that he loves you and that he's committed to you, then I don't think anything else will. You see, nothing can get to you without going through him. And he loves you. And if if you are in him, he's not looking to destroy you. He's looking to do something good. And so that's exactly what Paul has experienced in his life. He's experienced a lot of hard things, a lot of bad things, snake bites, shipwrecks, imprisonments, people lying about him. But in all of these things, he realizes none of these things can come to me unless they go through him. In other words, God has signed off on these things. And if God has signed off on these things and he loves me, then he must have a good purpose with these things. He must be working all of these things for good. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I'm not bitter. I'm not despairing because I know that nothing can get to me without going through him. And he he loves me. And he's got a good plan that he's working out. The other thing here, there are two sides to every chain, aren't there? there are two sides to every chain. Paul is in chains, like literally. He's locked in a room, chained 24 hours a day to Roman soldiers from the Praetorian Guard. They didn't have GPS ankle bracelets, you know, and like uh, invisible fences that could shock you if you tried to run away back in the day. And so to make sure that people who were going to face trial didn't just run off and disappear, this is how they had to do it. They would chain you to a guard and lock you in a room. And so that's what Paul's doing right now. He's Chained up and locked in a room. How claustrophobic would you be after two years of being locked in the same room and 24 7 being chained to somebody? See, Paul had prayed that God would take him to Rome, but not like this. Not like this, God. Why does it have to be like this? I wanted to go to Rome, but not like this. I wanted to go to Rome as a preacher, not a prisoner. And he wanted to come to Rome so he could tell the people of this great city about Jesus and who Jesus was and what Jesus had done. And now he can't do that because he's locked in this dumb room and tied to this dumb soldier. See, in a letter he wrote to the Romans before all this stuff happened, here's what Paul said. He said, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He's fired up. He's excited about doing this. He, he wants to come to Rome and preach the gospel. But that was before all this other stuff happened to him. That was before he got arrested and snake bites, and shipwrecks, and people trying to assassinate him, and now now he can't do what he originally wanted to do, because he's locked up in this dumb room and chained to these dumb soldiers. Why, God? I just wanted to serve you, he might have said. I wanted to preach the gospel. I wanted to tell people about Jesus, but now I can't do that, because I'm locked up in this room and chained to this dumb guy at the end of the chain. If only I wasn't in this situation, If only my circumstances were different, then I would serve you because then it would be different. Uh, But now I can't because I'm stuck in this room and I'm chained to this Roman. But that's not what Paul said, is it? That's what he could have said. That's what we sometimes feel or think or say. But that's not what Paul said. Do you know what Paul said? He said, you know what? It's not me who's chained to this Roman guard. I've got a Roman guard chained to me. It's not me who's locked in this room. I've got these guys locked in the room with me. They can't go anywhere. I can talk about whatever I want. We've got six hours. You're on the clock. And then when you're done, when you, when you've had enough of six hours of listening to the Apostle Paul, well then bring on the next guy, and we'll just keep going for it. I almost wonder Paul must not have slept very much because you know he's got a lot to take care of, and he's got new guys coming in all the time. God was like Paul. You want to reach Rome you want to reach the roman people for the gospel well here's your chance there's one right there he's handcuffed to you you've got a captive audience it's not you who's a captive it's him he's a captive of you and every six hours i'll give you a new one and you can just have it the next one you see there are two sides to every chain aren't there not only is paul chained to a roman but the romans are chained to the apostle paul the most persuasive evangelist the world has ever known And one by one, these soldiers are starting to come to faith as they spend their time with Paul the Apostle over the course of two years. It says at the end of this letter, Paul tells the Philippians in uh, chapter 4, verse 21 and 22, he says, all the believers in Rome send their greetings to you, and here's the cool part, he says, especially those of the household of Caesar. Do you know who that was? That's the Praetorian guard. People within Caesar's household were becoming Christians as a result of Paul having been smuggled in there by God as a prisoner. And how did that happen? Because God signed off on Paul being arrested. God signed off on Paul being lied about. God signed off on Paul being shipwrecked and this and that and down the line. You see... If those things hadn't happened, he wouldn't end up here. He could have never got himself into this situation. Caesar's household included the Praetorian Guard. That's the secret service. You see, imagine if Paul had come to Rome like he originally wanted to. And, you know, he started a little Bible study, put up his sign somewhere. Or maybe they started a Bible study in somebody's house, you know, on a couch. They're all setting up the chairs and everything. And then, you know, Paul would go out on the street. And he would invite people. He's got some flyers. Hey, come check out our Bible study. And you know, what's he going to do? Is he going to walk up to the Praetorian Guard? Hey, uh, you want to come to my Bible study? It's at this uh, guy's house over here, you know, in his apartment. Do you think that he would have just walked up to the members of Caesar's household and said, hey, uh, you guys want to come to my Bible study? How do you think that would have gone? Probably not very well. But now in God's providence, these people who would have never given Paul the time of day, who would have never attended his Bible study. God has brought the Bible study to them, and he's got them chained to the apostle Paul. You see, what happened here was above and beyond anything that Paul could have ever manufactured or worked out on his own. He couldn't have possibly even chosen a more influential group of people Then the Praetorian Guard, these are the people who worked directly with Caesar himself. And later on, the Praetorian Guard became the people who would choose the successor for the Caesar when a a Caesar died. And now they're locked up in a room with the Apostle Paul for six hours every day. And you can imagine how this would have gone. Because, see, Paul... He hasn't yet been convicted of a crime. And so he was allowed to have certain privileges. And the main privilege was that even though he couldn't leave this little room, uh, people could come and visit him. And so we know from his letters that people did come and visit him. We know that Luke visited him, the one who wrote the book of Acts. We know that Timothy came and visited him. We know that Epaphroditus came and and visited him. So Paul's Christian friends are coming by, they're hanging out, you know, for a week or two at a time, and they would talk, and they would pray, and they would read the Bible, and they would sing to God, and Paul would write these letters, and he wrote them by dictation, which means he would say what he wanted to write down, and his friends would write it down. Now some people say the Apostle Paul uh, had bad eyes. And that's why he wrote these letters by dictation and had his friends write them down. I say, maybe, but maybe he knew that there's these guards chained to him and he wants them to hear everything he says. He's shaking the chains. You hearing this? I want you to catch what I'm saying right now. You know, he would make sure that they heard everything he said. And so these men, these guards, they're listening to Paul pray. They're hearing him talk about the Lord. And probably at first they thought, this guy's weird. He's some religious fanatic, you know, and that's why he's in jail. Because he's some kind of, you know, religious weirdo. And then, uh, you know, eventually they'd ask him, you know, so what's your deal? You've always been, you know, kind of like a Jesus lover, goody two-shoes type of guy. And Paul would say, no, actually, I, uh, I used to hate Jesus. Like, I hated him so much that I helped kill a bunch of his followers. And they'd be like, really? You? Are you serious? Well, that's kind of cool, right? And then now he's got some street cred with these guys, right? And over time, uh, they realize that Paul's the real deal, that he's the same person no matter who's around. He's not putting on a show. This is for real. They see him suffer. They see him pray. They see him cry. They see him praise. And eventually they'd say, okay, so, so what's the deal with this Jesus? Who is this Jesus guy? W- what's this all about? How did you come you know, from being a guy who hated this to being a guy who, who is now suffering for this. And he would say, well, I'm really glad you asked and I'd love to tell you about it. And you can imagine that one by one, as these Praetorian guard are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, they begin to talk to people they know about Jesus. And now their meetings with Paul aren't about Paul evangelizing them, but it's Paul discipling them. And then six hours a day, they're locked in the room with Apostle Paul. It becomes like Bible school for these guys. All of this happened. Why? Because God signed off on Paul's suffering. God said yes to Paul's suffering. He signed off on Paul being arrested. He signed off on Paul being lied about and shipwrecked and locked up in a small room and chained to somebody 24 hours a day. You see, Paul's suffering was his passport into this situation. It was his passport into these people's lives. There are two sides to every chain. Not only is Paul chained to a Roman, a Roman is chained to Paul. And these difficult circumstances were his passport into this situation, into these people's lives that he would have never had otherwise. There are two sides to every chain. And it begs the question, the obvious question, from you to ask yourself what are you chained to? What is the thing which you feel stuck in? You feel like, man, you wish you could just run away from it sometimes. You're stuck in it though, and you feel kind of trapped in it. What is it for you? Is it your job? You feel trapped in a, in a marriage? You say, man, I, I'm in this marriage. I don't feel kind of trapped in this. Is it school? Is it your kids? You know, I'm just locked in this house with these kids and I can't get out of here and I feel trapped. Do you feel like there's something that you're chained to that you can't get away from? Here's what you need to know. There are two sides to every chain. There are two sides to every chain and there's nothing that can get to you without first going through him and therefore God has a purpose for having you in that situation that you're in that you feel trapped in. Matthew Henry is an author. He wrote an extensive commentary on the Bible uh, a few hundred years ago. And I generally don't like reading it because he, I think his goal was to say everything that could possibly ever be said about everything. Like he has this ex- hugely extensive commentary on the Bible. But he says something really good here. Matthew Henry, here's what he says about this verse right here. He says, Paul is claiming that God is the only alchemist Alchemist, right? So I was like, I think I understand what that means, but I'm not sure I do. I I thought, well, isn't an alchemist just like a pharmacist, right? Like from back in the day. Well, it turns out that's not what alchemy is. Probably you guys know this, but what alchemy is, is that in the Middle Ages, there was this idea, there was this theory that you could find a process through which you could turn lead into gold. And so alchemists were people who were trying to turn lead into gold. And uh, people were trying to figure this out because at that time, lead was considered to be a worthless metal. They they didn't know what to use it for. And it was soft. You couldn't do a lot with it. And so people were trying to figure out a process through which they could turn lead into gold. This useless, worthless, good-for-nothing thing into something beautiful and valuable. And they figured if you could find the process for doing that... I mean, you would be infinitely wealthy. But of course, nobody ever figured it out. Nobody ever figured out the secret to alchemy for turning lead into gold. But what Matthew Henry is saying is that God does that all the time. He does it all the time. He takes the useless, the worthless, the the good-for-nothing things of this world, and he turns them into pure gold, something precious, something valuable. See, we see that throughout the Bible, don't we? We see it here in the life of Paul. God has taken good for nothing circumstances, being in jail, being lied about, and God has turned them into something of incredible value, something beautiful, something wonderful. And let me tell you this God will do the same thing in your life as well if you are in Him, because God is the only alchemist. He's the only true alchemist. This is His business. This is what He does. He turns lead into gold. And He doesn't just do it in our lives with our circumstances, He also does it with our lives. He takes your life, which is like lead, and he puts it through this process of refining and forming and shaping and changing and working in you in order to turn you into gold, something valuable, something precious, something beautiful. And if you know that, if you know, as Paul did, that God is the only alchemist, that God is in the business of turning lead into gold. Then when you do face difficulties in life, you begin to go into them and you start to wonder. You start to look around and say, I wonder how God's doing it in this situation. I wonder what God's up to right now. I wonder how he's going to turn this situation into gold. And you begin to look for it. You begin to look for how God is going to turn these these worthless situations into gold. But there's an interesting thing. Let's, uh, Let's read verse 19 and 20. He says this, I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether through life or through death. See, now here's why that's an interesting statement, because he begins by saying, I know you guys are praying for me, and I'm sure that this will turn out for my deliverance. And you think, Oh, deliverance, he's talking about that God's going to get him out of these bad circumstances. But then he says, at the end of verse 20, he says, I may live and I may die. So in other words, he's saying, when he's talking about deliverance, he's not necessarily talking about getting out of jail. He's talking about a different kind of deliverance. What he's saying is this, not only is God turning my bad circumstances into gold and using these bad things for good, but he's also using these circumstances in order to turn me from lead into gold. He's turning me into gold through these things that are happening to me. Nothing can get to me without going through him, and I trust that God has allowed these things to happen both for the furtherance of the gospel and for my good. He's using these things in my life. It's part of his process of turning me from lead into gold. And these things that have happened, it's happened for his ultimate glory and ultimately for my good. So there are two sides to every chain. Nothing can get to you without going through him. God is the only alchemist turning good-for-nothing stuff into pure gold. That brings us to our final point, and that is engaging in the right conflict. Please read with me from verse 14. And in that, I rejoice. Paul's saying this, another good thing that has happened as a result of me being in jail is that people have been inspired by it and they're more bold to talk about Jesus. Now, some of these people though, they do this, their motivation in doing this is envy and rivalry, which is not good because here's here's what was happening. With Paul out of the picture... There were people who were kind of jockeying for position, trying to promote themselves as leaders, taking advantage of the void created by Paul being in jail. They were preaching the right message, but from the wrong motives. And here Paul is saying, you know what? I don't care. I'm just glad that the gospel's being preached, because that's what I'm living for. I'm not living for my own career. I'm not living for prestige. I'm not living for fame. Those things are not my life. You can take those things away from me and you can have them. There's only one thing that is my life. For me to live is Christ. Let me ask you in closing, what is the thing that you are living for? What is the thing that you would say, this is my life. If I have this, then I have life. This is my purpose for existence. This is my reason for being. This is the thing which is most important to me. This thing drives me. It is my life. For some people, it's their career. For, for other people, it's their family. You know, kids are your life. They are your reason for being. Or maybe it's your spouse or your status, your position, your identity, what other people think about you. You have made that your life. It's the thing that you live for. And if you ever were to lose it, then you would feel that there is no more reason to go on. But here's Paul in jail. And everything has been taken from him. And now he's faced with this situation where other people are trying to promote themselves above him while he's in jail. And he wants the Philippians to know that even though these people's hearts are not right in doing this, what they're doing doesn't bother him. Because his career is not his life. His status is not the thing that he's living for. These things don't define his life. If he were to lose all of it, his ministry, his friends, his possessions, he would still be okay because the gospel has redefined life for him. It has redefined death because of what Jesus did for him. His life has taken on a new meaning, a new direction, a new purpose. He's not living for status. He's not living for those things. And if he loses them, then so what? Let them have it. He's living for something so much bigger. Something which no one and nothing can ever take away from him. And because of that, he can have joy in the midst of even the darkest circumstances because for him to live has been redefined. For him to live is Christ and to die is gain. And therefore, he was absolutely fearless because he was completely secure. Here's what you find when you look to Jesus. You find that his whole life was lived for you. His whole life, his whole coming, it was for you. His death, it was for you. When you embrace what he did for you, your life and your death take on a whole new meaning. You gain a purpose in life and you gain a hope in death that no one and nothing can ever take away from you and a joy in your soul which is indestructible. Would you please stand with me and pray? Lord, we thank you for this hope of the gospel. We thank you for the implications of it. Lord, we thank you for these things that we know, these things that we know about your loving providence. Lord, that you are the God who's in control of everything, and therefore nothing can get to us without going through you. Lord, thank you that we know these things. and Thank you that, Lord, if you've signed off on something in our lives, you've done it for a good purpose, not to destroy us, but because you want to do something for your glory and for our good. Lord, help us to know these truths. Help us to be reminded and to remember these truths. And Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that that although we are more sinful than we even realize, we are more loved by you than we could have ever dared to dream. Thank you, Lord, that we are more accepted in you and forgiven by you because your son was rejected, because your son suffered, because you lived and died for us. Thank you for that. And, And may we, Like the Apostle Paul, may we live for you so that death itself is not a loss, but even a gain. I pray for anybody here today who would say, you know what, I want that, but I'm not there. I want to be there, though. And Lord, I pray for anybody here today who says, you know what, today's the day when I need to take that step and say, yes, yes, Lord, I I, I choose to live for you. I want to walk with you. I want to make my life Christ. I want to be in Christ. Holy and completely. Lord, I pray for those people that they would would pray together with me now and just say, Lord, thank you for, for dying for my sins. I confess that I'm a sinner and that I need a Savior. And thank you, Lord, that you are my Savior. You're everything that I need. Lord, thank you for dying for my sins. And I receive your forgiveness. And I choose today to walk with you and to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Pursuit of Happiness, a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Philippians. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.